Hey, everybody. Welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Eric Paler joins the show for a conversation about infrastructure in late ancient Pompeii. Dr. Paler is professor in the Department of Classics at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, based in the U.S., he has worked in the field in Pompeii for over 20 summers, and that has consisted of working on over four projects in that period of time. He's author of the book, The Traffic Systems of Pompeii, which was published by Oxford University Press. And he's co-editor of the book, Pompeii, Art, Industry, and Infrastructure, which was published by Oxbow Books. And Professor Paler joins the show today from the state of Massachusetts in the U.S. Welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Andrew. I'm glad to uh, speak to you today. Great to connect with you, Eric. So in th this context that we're speaking about today in infrastructure, and we're speaking about a historical topic, how do you define what infrastructure is? It's a great question. Infrastructure is uh, a slippery uh, sort of term. Obviously, it conjures in the mind a number of, of subjects uh, that, that, it, that it really should. Um, we should imagine that infrastructure in an ancient city would be represented by things like water flow. How does water get its way into a city? How does it get its way out of a city? Uh, how is it maintained and stored? Those types of things. So water is going to be a big part of the infrastructure. Obviously, other forms of uh, what we end up calling hard infrastructure. So, for example, um, the streets um, and other elements of the constructed city, the built environment, uh, become part of our imagining what we should uh, think of as infrastructure. But there's also equally important uh, is what often gets called soft infrastructure or administration, the kinds of uh, rules and regulations and personnel uh, that, uh, that are, uh, dictate and, and enforce those kinds of decisions uh, that make infrastructure actually happen because it's one thing to have uh, an aqueduct, it's another thing to devise the way in which that water will be uh, divide, divided and, uh, and used in the city. It's one thing to say that you're going to pave the streets uh, and to uh, restrict traffic in the in a city to certain zones, to certain times or to certain streets. And it's another thing to actually um, get that process of information enacted and shared amongst the people who are going to do it. So infrastructure is a, a very broad term. Um, it's one that I think we can imagine many of the features that, that, uh, that we should imagine, um, but also we shouldn't leave out um, the ephemeral, the non-material aspects of an infrastructural uh, system for an ancient city. Okay, sounds good. And so we have some things to chat about today based on your response. Yes, absolutely. All right. So we, we chatted about this when we had a, a, a pre-chat about time period, but it's, it's relevant. And I mentioned in the intro, we're speaking about the later period of Pompeii when it was functioning as a city. What, what can you share what time period you suggest we focus on in this conversation and why? Yeah, it's, it's in terms of infrastructure at, at Pompeii, um, we have a fairly firm end date uh, for a time period, right? We have the eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 CE. Um, and as far as the archaeological investigation of infrastructure, it's really the kind of 150, 200 years that precede the eruption that gives us the best opportunity to understand and to study 
the infrastructure at Pompeii. That's both a factor of the city's preservation. Obviously, the closer to the eruption, the better the preservation of a particular piece of infrastructure or really anything in the city. Uh, but it's also a factor of the city's historical development. Um, it is the case that large infrastructural investment in the city and major constructions uh, are, are beginning uh, in the late second century BCE. They're um, kind of uh, becoming more uh, a subject of interest uh, inside the city uh, as we transition into from the late Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. And then obviously uh, we get to see um, the time period in the in the, the later half of the first century CE, um, what a city like Pompeii is trying to do in order to kind of operate itself uh, for its citizens. By the first century CE, how large was Pompeii geographically, and what was its estimated population at its height? Well, we're in much better, we, we have a much better sense of its size. Inside the walled area of Pompeii, we have uh, about 640,000 square meters. That's hard to kind of wrap your head around. I don't know if hectares uh, makes any difference to people, but 64 of those uh, is what we might be talking about. But it's, so it's a um, it's a big space. Maybe if you want to put that in walking distance, it's about a mile across on one way and about three quarters of a mile across on the other way in a bit of an oval shape. Um, that is the contained walled area of the city. We, I say we're better said to know that um, because the population estimates uh, are much harder to get at. Um, I'll take just one step aside for a second to note that um, investigations now are showing uh, that the areas outside of Pompeii themselves, uh, the, the Roman suburb, uh, was uh, was very much a populated area, not just with tombs, but with also with shops and villas and other types of workshops. Um, and so we should imagine that the total population, the total area of Pompeii, was larger than we can estimate from the walled center. But our estimates for the interior of Pompeii, the kind of uh, Pompeii proper uh, range from on the low estimates of 6,000 uh, to high estimates well into the 20s to 30,000 uh, people. It's very, very hard to know. Um, most scholars take as something of the 12 to 18,000 as an average, um, uh, as an estimate. Um, and that's not a bad guess. We struggle to understand uh, how many buildings there are uh, in Pompeii, how many people we would imagine living in those buildings, and how much of the second floor of the city uh, is missing uh, in which to extrapolate more people. So the size of the city is something manageable, but still quite large. If you ever visit, you'll come to see how exhausting trying to visit the site can be. Um, but our sense of how many people live there, well, that's a bit tougher. Uh, and, uh, and it is important for trying to understand, say, things like the density of crowds, uh, the amount of material that needs to be brought in to the city uh, each day in order to sustain that population and to, and to remove its waste. Um, but we're not troubled by hundreds of thousands of people, but rather the distinction between perhaps uh, 12 and 20,000. Uh, 10 and 20,000 is probably stretching the estimates. Uh, that area. And what is it about uh, Pompeii that makes some of the items um, 
less the, having less information for scholars to have the level of uh, confidence that you may want around certain certain topics. Um, Pompey after the first century after 79 CE um, wasn't it hasn't been a, hasn't been a functional city since my, my understanding so so then what so what then what what is it and there, therefore things would have would have been there and I imagine certain things have decay, decayed and there's 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 other things that could have happened over 2,000 years but what, what what's this what's the specific things that that um, have occurred with Pompeii that makes some some things uh, harder to be exacting about. It is, in fact, an extremely paradoxical issue, which is that Pompeii provides such detail and such clarity on so many issues that when we don't have that kind of clarity on certain issues, we really struggle to make a decision. So if you compare, you know, Pompeii to just about any other site where you might have the outline of the city wall, but very, very little, and maybe perhaps you would could have some geophysics inside the city to outline some of the streets and some of the, of the major buildings. Um, these provide rough estimates that people become very comfortable accepting the fuzzy edges of those estimates, and they just know this is the best that we can do with the information that we have. The best that we can do with the information we have at Pompeii produces an expectation for very, very fine-grained details. And so in a certain sense, it isn't anything about Pompeii missing um, necessarily, except for the, the missing level of, um, of forgiveness <laughs> that we might have, that we can't know anything and everything about the city in that sense. I did mention, of course, that uh, the, um, the eruption of Mount Vesuvius uh, was really pretty catastrophic to the upper levels of the city. And um, unlike uh, other towns, uh, in this, that, particularly those that developed in the 2nd and 3rd century CE, Rome, Ostia, even parts of Herculaneum uh, is, is, is contemporary with Pompeii, uh, Pompeii wasn't a town of four or five or more levels high. It was really a town of two or three at the most, mostly. Um, and so the loss of a second level is a manageable loss in the sense that we, we don't have to imagine the possibility of, of, of uh, area, uh, orders of magnitude uh, of loss. Uh, but nonetheless, as I said, we can measure so precisely the first floor uh, and the inability to even, in certain senses, imagine a second floor is, is paralyzing um, uh, to our ability to come to consensus around um, a population estimate. Um, and I'm glad that it isn't, uh, <laughs> I'm glad that it isn't my uh, specific job to do that because I, I know how hard uh, my colleagues work at this, at this topic. Uh, and I, I, uh, I give them only uh, kind of praise and hopeful hopefulness that others will accept their ideas uh, without that fine, fine scalpel of, of judgment that Pompeii provides. It's come up on the show in different topics, the, the, the challenges that can occur with doing uh, estimation, uh, pop, uh, estimating populations um, in, in, uh, in certain periods in the past. So one of the um, items you mentioned in your first response in terms of what infrastructure is in this in this context was around traffic 
can you can you speak a bit about um, the can you can you can you create enough background and context for traffic and urban planning uh, in Pompeii in the later period, and then we we can work our way into some some details um, based on that response. Sure. So obviously, I have spent a good deal of time thinking and, and working on this topic, and so there's there, there are many many areas that could come to mind. I mean, we should probably do this, you know, telescopically. It's kind of at the city level, talking about the the urban grid, and then bringing ourselves downward to the individual street, and then into um, moment by moment um, uh, evidence inside the street. Uh, at that highest, most macro level. We can see a city, uh, Pompeii, really in two parts. Uh, a western side of the city that had developed earlier with a number of curving and discontinuous streets, streets with intersections that are T's, uh, Y intersections, rather than what we see in the west, sorry, the eastern half of the city, which is much more orthogonally arranged such that although there are long blocks um, with short sides that all meet with streets with, with right angles and four, and four uh, streets intersecting. Um, and so we have uh, at the citywide level, one side of a city that is easy uh, for traffic to get around uh, in the sense of the eastern side. Um, an intersection of four produces lots and lots of possible choices and the simple straightness of the streets allows for easier planning uh, from even an unknown, a person who doesn't know much about Pompeii, as another, you know, a visitor to the city, can get around much more easily simply by understanding the grid pattern of the streets. Whereas in the West, um, things are a bit more different. They are uh, discontinuous, they are kind of curving streets, and it's going to uh, interrupt the view of individuals around the city as well. So just getting around the city is going to be different in different sides uh, of, of the town. It's also going to be difficult and different in each uh, in the city to get around because of the size of the streets. Pompeii has um, perhaps 17 or so kilometers of streets in the city, um, but only nine of the streets, so as we kind of count them, um, it, it's hard to say whether you're talking about the same street as it crosses a major intersection or not, right? So uh, bear, bear with me as, as the numbers get fuzzy, but um, what we can say is that less than a quarter of all the street length, perhaps less than more closer to 10% of the street length, actually produces the width necessary for two lanes of traffic, wheeled traffic, to go up and down that street at the same time. That means that if you're just counting the streets, 80% of all the streets in the city are narrow enough to be restricted to a single lane of traffic. This means that getting around um, without any form of uh, organization uh, will require a good deal of planning. You'll want to stop at an intersection and look down that street to see if anyone's coming the opposite direction and perhaps not choose to go that way. Um, so the street system, the organization uh, of the, um, the size of the streets also produces constraints on how traffic would have been moving around uh, the ancient city. So as we think about it so far, you could imagine that a narrow street in the western half of the city uh, that is only going to go two or three blocks before you need to take a left or a right uh, and then continue in a direction you're not in, in a place you're not quite sure where you're going uh, really puts a lot of burden on uh, the individual navigating the city. It's a little bit easier in the east 
where someone could make a wrong turn and in their mind know that, oh, all I've got to do is kind of go to the end of the block and make a right or left and then turn uh, right or left again, and I'll be back in the direction I was uh, heading towards the direction I had left. So uh, you can kind of you know, just go around the block a lot more easily uh, in, in the east. If we drill down a little bit further, we can think about the kinds of textures of the streets, the pavements that, uh, that are there, the sidewalks that may or may not be along the edges of the streets, and the kinds of what you might call features or, or even street furniture, I've heard uh, people describe it as, as I, I like that term, um, that are inside of the streets. So in particular, the stepping stones that provide pedestrian access across the street. In this sense, um, we get a chance to recognize that by 79C, the city had been paved in most parts of the West and in some parts of the East, particularly streets that provided um, kind of East-West transit with a couple of North-South streets as well. So the vast majority of long, narrow, one-way streets, or I shouldn't say vast majority, a very good, uh, a high proportion um, of the streets running north-south in the eastern half of the city remained paved in uh, beaten, beaten earth or really beaten ash because that's the material available in Pompeii. Uh, whereas in the west, stone pavements proliferated. These two things produced interesting results. One is that um, the longer-lasting pavements of the west with these, with these um, uh, hard stone pavements which were more expensive to make, actually produced, they resisted, sorry, I should say, they resisted getting ruts longer, but they also resisted being replaced longer. So this meant that if you're driving in the West, you would more likely be driving on a rutted street than you would in the East, where a rutted street would be replaced on the kind of generational scale, whereas um, most of the streets in the West uh, would have been would have hung around for multiple generations uh, and, and been uh, more beat up in a sense because they actually would last longer. Again, kind of one of these paradoxical uh, relationships. Another reason why those ruts formed and became kind of so deep was that there were stepping stones. Stepping stones, uh, if uh, if the listeners aren't familiar, these are large blocks of stone set in the street. Usually these are uh, oval in shape, about a meter long and maybe uh, 60 centimeters wide or something like this. And they are set in the street so that a pedestrian can go from one elevated curb to the other elevated curb without having to descend into the street, which in one sense is about a 40 centimeter drop. Uh, and the other sense, it's, so that's just a change in elevation, but it's also the case that oftentimes the street might have been wet. Um, and the reason why the street descends the way that it does is because the storm drains of the city uh, were the streets themselves. But the position of a stepping stone that allows the cart to roll over it and placing one wheel on either side of it often then creates a, a more narrow place, a more restricted space for carts to go. And it produced more and more pressure on a more and more limited part of the city, uh, city street, which then produced more and more ruts. So stepping stones, while an important amenity, would have produced for many people traveling in the city, in the western half of the city, a lot of inconvenience uh, by producing these ruts. Why that isn't the case in the eastern half of the city 
is because for some reason, uh, the Pompeians chose not to use stepping stones on beaten ash streets. Um, there are only a very few examples where a beaten ash street uh, comes to an intersection with a paved street and there we'll sometimes find a stepping stone in place. But along the streets themselves, they just weren't used. So these are the kinds of textures, the kinds of experiences, the kinds of uh, uh, things you might imagine seeing if you're living in ancient Pompeii as you kind of came down from you know, floating from a, a balloon above the city, coming down to the individual street, and then coming down to an actual intersection and seeing the, uh, the life of the city play out as traffic moved across it from these uh, descending levels of, of detail. In uh, modern times, I've, I've experienced the, the, the narrow, narrow streets in, in functional uh, cities. Um, Cordoba, certain parts of the older part of Cordoba in, in Spain and uh, Sevilla in, in Spain. And it can be, it can uh, create a challenge for vehicles. But what, what, what also I find that gets presented in those environments is um, I, idyllic and very beautiful scenery. There's something about a very uh, narrow street. And then you have the, the older buildings on, uh, on both sides and the shops and, uh, and things like that. Oh, for sure. I mean, the, the narrowness of a street, <coughs> excuse me, the narrowness of a street, and particularly when it doesn't have a horizon line, it refocuses your attention on the immediacy of the moment, right? It, it, it makes the surrounding architecture, it makes the, the, the people in the scene at that moment the focus of your attention rather than your destination. Uh, and that's, uh, it, it also reduces the speed uh, that you can move through that space. So it really heightens the, the, the element of the moment in that sense. And, you know, just while I, while I have that thought, I, I should say that whereas my research um, has focused on wheel traffic uh, in particular because it, wheel traffic left a lot of evidence for itself in the streets, um, wheel traffic was probably the least common form of, of motion in the street. And we should imagine mostly one or two carts, but, but, but hundreds of pedestrians, uh, dozens of mules and donkeys uh, as the primary means by which people navigated the city and got around. Um, you know, these big carts would have forced their way through, but they would have done so as they, as they squeezed pedestrians and, and draft animals out of the way. I'm glad you got that point in because it's relevant to the conversation today, Eric. Do scholars know why the West and East have had different urban planning conducted. Why in the West, I, I believe you used different adjectives, but um, more, more curved, I think was one of those to just describe it. Um, and the, and the, the East wasn't, wasn't the case. It sounded like it was more of a grid system. Do, do scholars know why there's material differences in the in the in the approach to uh to urban planning with those with the two parts of the city we we have we have some good we have some good reasons to explain it um though those are not uh, entirely um they don't fulfill all of the rationales that we might we might raise um the biggest simple concern is or the big simple reason is chronology the western half of the city 
uh, dates back to the origin uh, of and the, the, the density and the planning of the city dates back to the origin of the city in the archaic period uh, through a period of, uh, of hiatus um, uh, in the fourth and fifth and fourth centuries. And then uh, it continued to be a center once the city was revived in the late fourth and beginning third century. And it's at that point that we know for certain, uh, and we still have a lot of archaeological work to do to, to prove that we know for certain, uh, that the eastern half of the city gets its grid plan uh, as part of a revival of the city uh, around 300 BCE. So one of the reasons is just that there's a pre-existing older city already in place in the west and that the pressure uh, to develop, uh, or, or rather I should say, the opportunity to continue to live and to develop in a more dense and more pre-built western side of the city um, was um, uh, one form of uh, incentive for the city to shape itself the way that it was. Um, but the, the other question is about the, you know, the lower density of occupation, it seems, at certain points in the east, and why it was that this open land um, that in 300 was, was underdeveloped becomes developed later on in the, in the forthcoming centuries. And then by 79 CE uh, seems to be a, uh, a less densely inhabited area um, filled with things like the amphitheater and uh, the Grand Palestra, a great uh, open, uh, almost like per colonnaded parade ground. These urban amenities take over space for living, uh, living space. Uh, and create a, a less dense urban environment that interestingly correlates with that absence of urban investment in, in stone pavements in that kind of hard infrastructure for the eastern half of the city. So why it is that the, the two parts of the city are, are different, a kind of continuous eastern and discontinuous western half of the city comes down to the to different trajectories of history and chronology that they experience. But at the same time, why we didn't see the uh, Pompeians take up the opportunity to, you know, build an entirely new city um, and start over and really, you know, invest in that eastern half uh, to the detriment of the western half, that is a, a more, uh, that is a more contingent kind of historical question, which is contingent is a word that we often use when we say we don't know. Uh, and there are many forces of, of development that, that need to be entangled. But it's a really fascinating question um, uh, to answer why they chose, why, to answer that counterfactual of why they didn't uh, invest in that, uh, in that eastern area to the degree uh, that the West seems to have preserved. Okay. The, uh, so water flow as an aspect of infrastructure. Sure. And I also want to include in this question sewage. Can you can you provide similar treatment to that to that topic or topics if you treat them separately as you did with uh, tra traffic so that we cover cover that aspect of infrastructure? Yeah, absolutely. So water infrastructure um, has a, a a similar trajectory to to street pavements to the cities to the city streets, um, their pavements and uh, and the traffic system that gets organized within them. Um, water. Obviously, just like human movement, um, requires uh, uh, investment um, from the earliest days. And so wells um, in the city were dug, uh, some of them uh, very, very deep, uh, 
tens of meters deep from the northern part of the city. Um, but much more commonly were household-based cisterns uh, in which water from the houses was stored and kept. And this is a system that continues all the way until uh, the um, uh, until the eruption, there are still houses with water uh, storage in them, even though around the turn of the millennium, perhaps uh, the date we often give is about 20 BCE, the arrival of an aqueduct uh, bringing water from the Apennines past Pompeii, which some has uh, taken off, but on its way to, to Naples. Um, to give some sense of the relationship in water um, in the city, at say the turn of the, the first century BCE into CE when 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 these uh, uh, when the aqueduct arrives, um, we have no less than currently currently no less than about thirty five water basins water fountains in the city. Um, perhaps half of those um, uh, or more would have been in place early on and slowly developing over time uh, into the urban landscape providing water around the city um, for the inhabitants. If you go and you take the locations of the fountains in Pompeii, you can see that they're not rigidly organized. But if you, if you draw a circle of, say, 50 meters over the, um, each fountain, you'll find that these fountains overlap, these, these 50 meter circles overlap one another to a large degree, and they leave gaps uh, of relatively small size so that most of the city, and so at least of the excavated portion of the city, um, 70, 80% of the city is within 50 uh, to 60 meters of a fountain. So it's not too far to walk for, for, for uh, provided water. But at the same time, the household level, we still have more than, uh, I think the number is over 800 now, and I have to, um, uh, I have to check a forthcoming publication uh, by a PhD student named Janet Dunkelbarger, who has done uh, the counting and the reporting work for all of the drains that come out of the curbs from houses, shops, uh, and workshops that come out of the curbs and lead into the streets. So 800 examples where water from inside the city, uh, sorry, inside the insula, inside of a building, is being let out into the street. That some of this is just simply from wastewater from roofs is, is undeniable, but a large proportion of them, certainly almost all of the houses with a, uh, an atrium that has an, uh, a, an overflowing cistern below it, for three and a half to 400 of those, uh, demonstrate how much, even in the final era uh, of Pompeii, people were relying on storing their own water, even as it was uh, available for substitution uh, and supplement for supplement uh, supplementary use from these fountains. That we see water arrival uh, in the city being used not just for drinking water, but also for display lets us know that the water was not merely a commodity uh, in, in a practical sense, but also one for ornamentation and ostentation, where piped water was brought into the largest houses of the city uh, and used to um, produce uh, dramatic effects through uh, mosaic columns, through long um, uh, 
what you might call canals um, through these little faux rivers that run through some of the largest houses in the city. All of these things uh, that would let people know that the individual could command a resource uh, that came from the city level uh, within their own property and to use something as important as, as water, which at times of drought could be uh, extremely important to people, to use it as a plaything was uh, certainly a, a, a flex, uh, as, as the modern parlance uh, puts it. But where all this water went is, is its own kind of interesting question. We've already mentioned that in the streets of Pompeii, uh, the, the stepping stones indicate that there is an expectation for water in the street and that the streets themselves, their box or canal-like shape, uh, indicates that Pompeians would have thought that water was going to end up in the street and it needed to be corralled and contained and it needed to be sent out of the city through these streets. Now, later Roman cities will develop uh, understreet sewerage and this kind of sewerage is a is a famous aspect of Roman infrastructural development that, that we see in cities, particularly in the second and third centuries CE, so after the time that Pompeii uh, is, uh, is, is buried by Vesuvius. But Pompeii already has a few of these, these uh, major sewers, um, maybe three, maybe four, depending on how we, how we count them, that belong to the specific infrastructure for particularly for bathing, um, structures or for the forum. And so we have a couple of examples of big underground sewers that carry water away from otherwise very water-rich um, uh, uh, infrastructure, water-rich buildings. So as I say, the stadium baths and the forum baths. And then the forum itself uh, is uh, a, a massive impermeable basin that when rain occurs, some of that water will be stored in uh, public cisterns, but then it will overflow and run out of the city through a massive underground sewer. Most of Pompeii, however, did not have access to this kind of, uh, of infrastructure. That if you were, and as we just talked about with, with, uh, with Janet Dunkelbarg's work, if you have water in your house, you're probably hundreds of meters away from a sewer and you're going to need to simply sluice it out into the street. Um, this means um, that we need a system to both contain that water and to segregate different types of wastewater. Let me deal with the second part first. The second part, I mean to say that as we all can imagine with our own, uh, with our own uh, imaginary olfactory senses, that there is a vast difference between storm drain water and toilet water. Uh, and the two of those getting into the street um, produce vastly different effects on, uh, on the salubriousness of a town. Well, Pompeii seems very much to have avoided the opportunity for toilet water or human waste to get into the street directly. There are many hundreds of toilets known in the city. Well, maybe not hundreds of toilets. There are over 150 toilets uh, known in the city. Um, and almost all of those, uh, a few are directly connected to a sewer, but almost all of those go into a large underground um, cesspit filled with the actual, often filled with the material that will later bury Pompeii, these little ash pellets called flotilli, 
which provide a very permeable but still kind of compactable um, uh, uh, material in which to fill up the cistern, the, sorry, the uh, cesspit uh, and allow waste to drain away into the soils uh, and avoid the process of being placed in the street. So if we already know that the street itself is going to be wet, we at least know that the source of that water is probably drinking water or rainwater, and that's uh, that's quite that's quite helpful. Of course, the street wouldn't necessarily be clean, uh, but we do know that we're not getting um, uh, the vast majority of human waste out into the street. I want to. Oh, yeah. Yep. I, I, I'll go ahead and complete your your thought if uh, you're still treating the the water flow and sewage, Eric. Yeah. Let me just uh, of course. say one more thing about that. When we return to the question of, say, the vast winter rains uh, in Pompeii and the 600,000 square meters of roofing in the city collecting that water and then delivering it down into the impermeable, uh, uh, many impermeable areas of the city, we realize that Pompeii is going to collect a lot, a lot, a lot of water. And as the city is largely sloping on a south, southeasterly direction, we can know that uncontrolled, that water is simply going to slow, is to move its way down the city, increase speed, increase volume, and make its way out the few ways that it can, particularly the city gates, uh, which um, we know are not quite up to the task of, uh, of getting all the water out um, on their own. Uh, and so the Pompeians developed systems in order to segregate the water to break it into smaller chunks that we can call a bit of water a chunk um, and and, uh, and then to set it on paths that would avoid some of the necessary flooding that would occur at the bottom or the southern end of the city simply if water were left uncontrolled um, this is another area of research that i've uh, i've conducted in, and one of the interesting facets of it is that what we end up seeing is that the Pompeians developed a rather, a, a, a quite complicated system of, or I shouldn't say complicated, a sophisticated system of water control based on really, really simple interventions in the street. They simply went to the southern end of long east-west streets and blocked off either by a complete closure of the street for traffic or by a, an, an elevated ramp that produced uh, the opportunity for, for traffic to move through, but not for water to flow through, uh, and sent the water down, basically most of the time, down four blocks away, such that it could be placed on a path towards one of the city gates, towards one of the sewers I've already mentioned, or towards um, a hole that we assume, but we have not yet established, uh, would have been in some of the places along the southern city wall. So this basin uh, system that breaks up the city into uh, 11 different uh, small basins, each one roughly 7 to 12 uh, percent of the city's area, except for one, one massive one that's almost a quarter of the whole city, uh, this is how Pompeians managed to get the vast amounts of wastewater that the streets suggest existed out of the city in ways that prevented the worst kinds of flooding that, un that uncontrolled water flow uh, would, have, would have allowed. I want to tack 
on one more item in this segment of our conversation, Eric, garbage. What did, what, what did Pompeians do with their garbage? Man, it's a, it's a great question, what did Pompeians do with garbage? And it's one of these questions that's being answered now by some really, uh, really good scholars, uh, people I'm lucky enough to call colleagues, people like Allison uh, Emerson, Kevin Dykus, who've worked on trash. And it's coming in uh, two different, the answers are coming from two different places. One is the area in which we see piles of debris outside of cities. So naturally, you know, we, we know that trash had to get out. We know that from some traffic laws that one of the carts that, that one of the types of carts that's exempted from the ban of carting uh, in the city of Rome is, is a cart that's leaving the city full of garbage. Uh, and so we know that it's an important enough, uh, important enough function to get exemptions inside major laws uh, in, the, in, in the cities. But how that process is enacted is, is pretty tough to understand specifically. Um, was there a garbage system? Probably not. Um, was it, a, was it a, a household by household level problem and process? Probably. Um, uh, the systematic way in which Pompeians seem to do a number of things does suggest to me at least that perhaps there were um, uh, contractors who might have um, might have been available for the kind of large-scale pickups uh, that might have been necessary, but your daily household trash, it's really hard to know what happened to that. Um, the second area that, uh, well, I'll just come back to that for a second. So we do know from the, the work around the city that there are these piles of trash um, that have been heaped up and it's hard to disambiguate them from the debris that came from the, uh, the great earthquake of 63 uh, CE uh, that demolished the city and would have required a huge effort to rebuild. So we know that there were vast piles that came from that, but just your average daily life of the city still would have produced a great deal of material and it would have been you know, aggregated in areas outside the city. The systematic elements that is of interest uh, is also the fact that trash was something that could be commodified. So I, I imagine for you the idea that, um, that some uh, entrepreneurial spirited uh, contractors might have sought to you know, get a fee in order to remove large scale piles of dirt, but they also would have necessarily gone and seen that material as something that they could pick through for potential building materials, so tiles, um, bricks, um, uh, other kinds of building material could be readily reused uh, and maybe sold again. In fact, we actually know that uh, from an, a painted inscription that, that these kinds of materials were resold in the city. Um, but once they got outside the city, they became another kind of commodity because the other area in which people are investigating trash, and not, not least the people I've just mentioned, uh, and a colleague of mine, Stephen Ellis, um, is that when the city rebuilds itself, when, in, when a house decides to change its floors, to insert possibly some, some water infrastructures, oftentimes the floor is raised up by a number of centimeters, 10, 20, 40 centimeters. And in doing so, one needs to get vast quantities of earth 
to do this. And obviously you can't dig a hole in your own house in one area to make the, hollow, the house taller in another. You need to bring in new material. And the, uh, the new interest in studying the material that comes out of these fills suggests that there are commodities of waste material outside, somewhere outside the city that have been very well sorted through and picked over for larger materials, but not necessarily for smaller ones. And, and the reason we know that is that uh, I was just working on this recently. If you take a relatively large fill of a, uh, of a tank, so in this case, an industrial tank uh, that would have been filled around the turn of the first century CE, um, we find in this large, um, this large kind of two and a half square, sorry, two and a half cubic meters of earth, we find over 2,000 uh, um, uh, objects within it. That's a lot of material, but by, by weight, at least, they represent just over 1% of the amount of material. That's a tiny, tiny percentage, a tiny, tiny fraction of all the material in there, but a really high number of objects. And the objects themselves uh, can represent sometimes high-value objects, uh, such as coins, uh, or, or, or jewelry. And these higher value small objects show us that this process of sorting through trash uh, as it gets out of the city and gets back in is not one in which people are sitting the dirt um, because they would have found these things just like we did, uh, but instead are visually picking it over uh, and then visually bringing it back in or, or visually picking it over as they bring it back in such that these smaller elements can just hide inside of a bucket, both going out of the city and then coming back into the city uh, and finally being recovered in one of our buckets. That um, gives a sense that trash, uh, a, constant, a constant product of an urban environment, was also a constant commodity of an urban environment as well. Okay. So in your opening response, Eric, when you were outlining what infrastructure is in this context, uh, you're compartmentalizing the uh, various items. The, the uh, at least how I heard it, the third major item that you outlined was administration. So how was the city administrating the various items that, you're, that, that you've uh, covered today? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and, a, and, a, and one that we can only kind of get at by proxy. So, for example, the, the water administration at Pompeii has good analogies in, in the water administration in Rome. So there were um, specific um, uh, magistrates uh, in, involved in these kinds of things. There were specific kind of boards of bureaucracy, particularly public, uh, public slaves. So, in, for example, the most recently discovered uh, individual uh, from Pompeii was one of the, one of the very high-status uh, high public, uh, public enslaved people. Um, who knows what they were in charge of? But one of the things that we do know is that public infrastructure for water in particular had, um, uh, had investment in human beings and a bureaucracy that we don't see in other areas. Uh, and this is necessary because we can see that the people who would have been kind of given the titular authority over um, over infrastructure, water infrastructure in this case, uh, the the ediles, these are the the most junior of the city officials. They have a one year tenure, and they tend to be the first step in a ladder 
of, of uh, official um, uh, official work in the city for young um, up-and-coming noblemen who are going to make their mark on the city. And if you imagine that inexperienced one-year officers are going to run something as important as the water infrastructure for an entire town, you should imagine that there was somebody underneath that uh, with a longer term, uh, with uh, access to the records and access to the people who will actually do the maintenance, the upkeep, and the building uh, necessary to maintain that system. So water infrastructure as an analogy from Rome lets us know that there are probably quite a few people involved in this uh, and that the decision-making folks uh, were making bigger decisions rather than kind of the day-to-day -day decisions probably. Um, in terms of traffic, uh, we're on much less secure footing. Um, we have uh, only the evidence from the city itself, so only the evidence from Pompeii itself. Um, there are, and I won't go into the details here, but there are uh, hundreds of examples of pa patterns of wear inside the city where you can see how a cartwheel had interacted with a stone, ground it down, and left a pattern that can only be produced if a cart were going in one, if a wheel was turning in one way, a cart was therefore going in a particular direction. When you add all this up across the landscape of the city, you see that there is a clear pattern of control of movement inside the city, such that one-way streets existed, such that the, um, the clear uh, direction of movement was against the right side uh, of the road, and that over time, some of these patterns um, uh, that, that they changed, um, not only to have streets that were once going one way, go another way, but for streets that are alternating uh, in, in movement across the city. So as you're going from east to west, streets alternated direction, one up northbound, one southbound, one northbound, one southbound, in ways that we can recognize in modern cities today. All of that is indicative of a system of rules and therefore um, representative of the people who must have enacted them, who must have created them, enacted them, and then uh, somehow managed to support them. The infrastructure for uh, people, uh, for traffic, we just don't know. Um, I've spent a lot of time speculating about it. There must be the same kind of bureaucratic infrastructure, soft infrastructure that water, uh, that the water infrastructure had. In fact, they were probably the same people based on how much water was a factor in actual street maintenance. Um, but we also should imagine that even with that, there shouldn't possibly, I don't think we should ever imagine that there were actually, say, public enslaved people standing on street corners telling people to turn right here and not left there. Uh, instead, we should imagine that uh, the limited number of drivers who actually conducted the, the carts through the city um, were in a form of communication with themselves and with others uh, at the city level uh, that helped maintain the system uh, and its efficiency, that this was a distributed effort amongst uh, the public-private partnership, if you will, so that the city could have a system and the, uh, and the uh, drivers could benefit from it. In, in total, we just don't know. We're, we're still waiting for that cart to be found halfway around, the, um, uh, halfway around a, a city block. We're still waiting for a sign that says one way, um, but we're unlikely to find those things. Instead, we're, we're best suited to continue this process of of looking hard at the archaeological evidence 
and then limiting what it could possibly mean and then speculating within those limitations about how things actually worked. Do you have the notion or is it known if they had, um, you mentioned the term bureaucracy um, and and I could be retrodicting a, a bit because we're, we're used to various cities and those the the the, um, the departments and the services that come with a, a municipality. Do you think it, it it would be it would be at all close to that kind of uh, resemblance in Pompeii, where there's some kind of again I don't want to use an anachronistic term, but I also want to stay colloquial a like a city like a city hall, and then there would have been various departments to administrate. Um, infrastructure is there evidence and if there isn't evidence what what notion do you have about that yeah there 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 is evidence um for public buildings there are particularly three enigmatic buildings on the south end of this uh, of this uh, forum at pompeii that we have very little idea what was what they were for but by their position and by their grandeur we know that they had some type of public function whether or not we can repopulate them with uh with with uh, a department of motor vehicles uh, or a public works office is maybe a bit of a speculation too far. And the reason for that is that we we don't see much in the way of, uh, of literary evidence to suggest that those kinds of things were available. And instead, we do see lots of social evidence that as people looked to um, looked to the services that they needed and required in their lives, they didn't think of the city government as the place to be providing it first. They probably first went into their social networks and contacts. So sometimes those would be horizontal social networks and contacts, people they lived and worked with, people they knew. But very often, we understand those have been vertical contacts. So uh, individuals who had patrons, uh, they would go see a person with more uh, political uh, clout or economic uh, uh, wealth uh, who might be able to make things happen either by convincing someone else to change their mind or by buying out something uh, or by activating their own social network, particularly higher, which might then lead to that edile I was talking about earlier uh, and, and intervening uh, uh, into his decision making uh, uh, such that some far down the, the line of social ladder, um, someone could be benefited by that. Um, you know, we, we, we have to ask ourselves, if a city street was blocked by a, uh, a blockage in order to prevent water from flooding, that on one side, that in one way was quite possibly a, a benefit to the people who lived further down that street who didn't want to get flooded, but people further up that street might have seen it as an impediment to maybe social or economic development by reducing the number of people who might come down that street. Those are, that's a, a real speculation, um, but it does provide something of the context in which those, um, uh, those, those social networks would be activated, what kinds of choices and interests uh, would be, would be at the, in the level of conversation, and the kinds of things that probably didn't make their way into these public buildings in the forum, um, uh, uh, which uh, we just don't have the evidence uh, there was that kind of level of bureaucracy. I find this topic so fascinating, and uh, as, as as you know, it, 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 we we have to keep it under an hour for for everybody. But if we had more time, Eric, I would I would certainly be, speak with you longer about this topic. 
thank you for coming on the show today and sharing your knowledge on infrastructure in uh, late ancient Pompeii. You're very welcome, Andrew. And I, you say we do need to wrap up, but I always say that if uh, if the house was on fire and the only way to put it out was a four-hour lecture on Pompeii, I would tell people to just sit down and refine while be putting this pop, this uh, this out really quickly uh, for us. Uh, so thanks for the opportunity to speak and 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 talk to you and your audience. You're 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 welcome, and your passion and your knowledge definitely uh, came through today, Eric. So again, everybody, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Professor Paler wrote. He's author of The Traffic Systems of Pompeii, and he's co-editor of Pompeii, Art, Industry, and Infrastructure. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Eric and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.